0: As I was preparing to speak today, I saw a little YouTube mini commercial that will kind of help illustrate some of what I want to talk about. Uh, in that little commercial, a tourist who's looking out on the Grand Canyon suddenly pulls up his phone and says, Google, how big is the Grand Canyon? And the phone, now covering up the view of the Grand Canyon itself and displaying a Google, Google map, responds, 1,300 square miles. As the commercial fades away, we hear the, the man say, wow, cool. I'm not sure whether the cool applies to the awesome splendor of the Grand Canyon or the technology that revealed what was previously a sort of mystery, but my guess is that Google would like us to believe the latter or would at least like us to kind of equate the two together. Either way, I think that such stories help illustrate a challenge that we face in the modern world. It's almost a perfectly ironic reenactment of the Tower of Babel to see our mastery over time and space through an internet-connected phone as being greater than God's creation itself. Technology gives us much control over our surroundings, so much so, in fact, that we begin to think merely in terms of control or of mastery, both as a means to greater happiness and as a way to counter what appears to be the chaos of life that that surrounds us. But I think the scriptures show a little different vision for ordering life. Namely, that God created, sustains, and redeems the universe under the paradigm of love. Love, real love, God's love, has an order to it, but it's not something that can be molded to our will. Of course, the irony that I came to this revelation while I was watching a YouTube video about how to improve my techniques for making a better audio recording that's not lost on me. Um, so I, I want to make it clear that I'm not saying technology, understanding, concrete answers are bad. Nor am I saying that love is in opposition to knowledge. But I would suggest that given our fallen condition, we'll tend to assume that the way towards recovering our true nature comes from reordering creation by mastering it. I think that part of the message of scripture is to learn to see as knowledge in some ways, to see knowledge as mysterious a bit, and not directed towards reordering creation in our image, but redemption of creation through God's love. Reordering and redeeming are two pretty different things, and and Damon's most recent series dealt with God's consistent link between creation and redemption, a link that was there from the beginning, and so much so that, in fact, God doesn't even reveal to Israel about creation until he's redeeming them. So I'd like to look at at that from a little bit different angle and see how God's creation redemption differs from controlling and reordering that comes naturally. Uh, We see it in scripture and I see it in my life all the time. The idea that we should know the how and why of all things, or at least we should expect a certain reaction from any given action, is like breathing for us. Uh, We pull a tap, we expect water. We flip a switch, we expect light. Running our lives by technique and ordering is just the way things are. This is even more so with each new generation as it finds itself even more deeply buried in technology from birth. And technology is not bad. I mean, I feel blessed to make a living pushing digital ones and zeros around and music comes out. It's pretty amazing. But I need to be careful not to lose myself to the technique of that and to forget that music and beauty are a mysterious gift from God. Beauty and love as God's creation are the forest, and I don't want to forsake that uh, for just looking at my own digital trees. Um, by the way, when I use the word control here, I'm not really meaning the same thing as uh, you might hear on Dr. Phil, you know, where they talk about a controlling spouse or a boss that's controlling. I mean it in the sense partially that Jacques Ellul might describe it as technique, Uh, methods or techniques for making things predictable and fully known. I don't know if you remember the old television series Get Smart, but in Get Smart, chaos and control were the two names of the opposing agencies. Um, That pairing seems very natural. Chaos, we tend to think of them parallel, where we're presented with chaos and we want to restore control. But that's not the whole picture or the only solution, and it doesn't seem to be the primary story that we see in Scripture. Just imagine how much more simple Israel's history might have been if if God had made things more orderly and controlled. No 400 years of slavery in Egypt, maybe. No golden calf, no Bathsheba, no exile, and certainly no cross. These aren't the most efficient, controlled means possible, at least from our perspective. But God, through Scripture, acts mysteriously, in part because he responds to the disorder resulting from our fall with something different, with love. And love is not always as orderly as we would like it to be. My text today is uh, Job. <laughs> um, it's a book that might not seem to be the, very concerned with love. In fact, some people might list it last if you were going to say, what would Scripture speak to you about love? But I I hope to show that as a a narrative focused on redemption, it reveals a lot about God's love. Also, the fact that Job is among the oldest books of the Bible might help illustrate that these kinds of ideas of control and technique are not really just modern concerns. Job is generally presented as a good man who proclaims his innocence against his friends. The innocence Job claims in this case is not sinlessness like we would think of, um, but rather a a rightness acting in accordance with God's laws. Uh, And as a result of that, he's blessed with wealth and family. In that belief, Job Job and his accusers are pretty much in agreement. Uh, In other words, punishment is a direct result of sin all the time. So those who are suffering have done something to deserve it. And Job's not really different than, than his accusers in that way. He just knows that he hasn't done anything wicked enough to warrant his present Suffering, His friends, on the other hand, are certain that since reaction follows action, that Job must be guilty of something pretty horrendous, since he's in a very miserable place right now. His sin that caused that must have been equal to that. Eliphaz asks Job, Is it because of your reverence that God reproves you, that he enters into judgment against you? Is not your wickedness great and your I- inequities without end? Job Zophar says to Job, he has seized a house which he has not built. Because he knows no quiet within him, he does not retain anything he desires. God will send his fierce anger on him and will rain it on him while he is eating. He may flee from the iron weapon, but the bronze bow will pierce him. This is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. And on it goes. His accusers take 43 chapters and will not give in, but not really because they care about defending God's honor or particularly about helping Job. Really, rather they just need to see God's justice as a humanly knowable and therefore, in a sense, predictable and controllable trait of God. Job too wants to expect, know what to expect out of life, and he measures God's in love in ways that are knowable by him. That's not unnatural for any person facing a world that seems to be marked by chaos. In fact, part of what makes the book of Job so difficult is that his friends don't only say false things. There's a lot of truth in even the reprehensible speeches of his friends. There's truth to some of their statements, and, and we should all hope that blessing follows good actions and that the wicked are held accountable. But for Job's friends, this has become the defining mark of God which allows them to believe that God can, in a sense, be controlled by good behavior. I do good, God responds thusly. I cheat, God lashes out. That's only really one step removed from the way the idol-worshiping Amorites saw their gods. They were things that you could hold, things that could be controlled. And there's a sense in which Job's friends, and even Job, to an extent, believe that God is bound by certain characteristics, and will act to control the uncertainty of life under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, was frequently used by the author of Ecclesiastes, and it describes how we see things living in a fallen world. The author, in fact, assumed almost the opposite of Job's friends. That is, oftentimes, it seems like good is punished and evil rewarded. Living down here under the sun, the world looks chaotic and often without purpose. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes puts it, all is vanity and futile. That view has a little bit of an echo in the words of Job's wife when she suggests that he curse God and die. In other words, there's no hope. It's all vanity, so just give up. Job's response that we accept good, so we must accept adversity shows faith, but it still misses the truth about God's love for his creation. So the author of Ecclesiastes sees the world ruled by chaos, and Job's friends see the chaotic world held in check by a God that always acts according to rules that they can understand. Rules which allow them to maneuver, manage, control, and reorder, in a sense, the world the way they would like to see it. His wife and friends want Job to see God as one-dimensional and always predictable, or maybe not knowable at all. But God shows something different to Job in the end. First, God reveals that what surrounds Job is not chaos and disorder, but God's good creation that shows itself sometimes in challenging and mysterious ways. So in Job 38, towards the end of the book, when God is answering Job out of the whirlwind, we read, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched a line on it, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors when, bursting forth, it went out from the room, when I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors and said thus far you shall come but no further and here your proud waves will stop in this section God reminds Job that God is creator and his glory in creation is rightly a mystery for mankind but it is not chaos it's God's sovereign kingdom that he rightly rules in all aspects he continues in Job 39 do you know the time the mountain goat gives birth Or do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the the months they fulfill? Or do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down and bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong. They grow up in an open field. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosened the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. How is this an answer to Job's suffering? It doesn't really seem to answer the question at all. But maybe it's because the questions that Job and his companions are asking are the wrong ones. In God's response, response, we see a Lord who is passionately connected, a loving father to all creation, intimately aware of and caring for every aspect of the lives and the places he has designed. It's an ongoing involvement fueled by sovereign love. We might even see God's response as the precursor for his words in Matthew. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I think it's, it's at least possible to see the book of Job as a kind of description of creation being redeemed. Job starts with a great blessing, loses it all, sort of like the fall. He then suffers what seems to be lonely chaos with an absent God. He hopes for a redeemer in a confirmation of God's goodness, the famous I-know-my-redeemer-lives passage, but instead must contend with his pharisaical friends who believe they know the mind of God, and that all situations have predictable controllable causes based on their understanding of justice. But for God, justice is different, is something different than mere cause and effect. It is as Damon recently described it in his series on creation and redemption, the setting right of all things so that creation functions as it was meant to. That's God's justice. That is why the truth in Job is beyond both simplistic suggestion of Job's wife to curse God and die and the pleading of his accusers to recognize that some specific action or sin on Job's part has caused God's retribution. It's important to note, too, that God parades his good creation before Job and describes its goodness as a way of saying, I've made all of this, but you, that is humanity, are holding up its full expression, redemption and perfection. When I've restored you to a right relationship, all of the rest of creation will find its final purpose. In the past, when I've looked at the book of Job, the ending, Job's return to prosperity, it almost seems tacked on. Like it was there to undo the message of the first 41 chapters and say, if you hang in there through tough times, then eventually you'll prosper beyond your wildest dreams. Certainly some see it that way. Um... Or maybe there's sometimes bad things happen to good people, but time heals, so hang in there and you'll be happy again someday. But if the book of Job can be seen from a post-resurrection perspective as a description of God's redemption of creation accomplished through love, then what we see in the end of Job is a type of the new creation, whereby the blessing far outstrips anything we could have imagined. it's It's not God telling Job, He's figured it out. He's unlocked the code, and now he's being rewarded so that we can follow Job's patience and get the good things in life just like he did. In other words, control our destiny for maximum wealth. Rather, it seems more like God is placing Job in a new creation, a real treasure, which is the realization that all good things are the result of God's love for and sovereignty over his creation, not Job's performance in which like the new creation promised in Christ is physical relational and overflowing with love and blessing if the world's merely chaotic and characterized by decay and randomness then we'll rightly turn to remedy that with control some of those impulses lead to good uh, though in a fallen world there will never inevitably be unforeseen negative side effects but if the focus or telos to use a word that Damon used in his series of our existence is merely to control the chaos, we will at best reorder creation. That was not the good of which Damon was speaking. Reordering is an attempt to get back into the garden and fix things up ourselves, or at least get things under control. Redemption is God's action alone. We participate by his grace, but we do not direct it. I don't think it's possible to go more than five minutes without controlling some aspect of nature in our lives in a way that didn't even exist 200 years ago, or to go a day without somewhere being told that mastery over the world is what defines and will eventually save us. I really can't change the way the world comes at me, and I partake in it when I drive a car, when I work on my computer. That's not a bad thing. But if I'm able to at least recognize the message for what it is, I can begin to see how it grabs at my loyalty and will, if it unchecked, guide every decision and interaction I have. It might also allow me to see the contrast with God's far less orderly, far less controllable, but perfect means of redeeming his creation through love that finds its form in the church, the body of Christ. Well, that's, that's it, but I, just, I do have one s- story that I, I think sums up the conflict for me, even discussing this. As I was writing this sermon, um, it took a lot of time. I'm self-employed, and time kind of means money for me. So I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, this is taking a lot of time, but I know that this time is going to be redeemed by blessing, and, and maybe God will give me more work, or you know, take care of me in some way because I put this time in. And I thought, wow, here I am writing about Job doing that very thing and his friends, and yet it's so much a part of how I live and how I see things as ordered in this world that I can't escape it even when I'm writing against it. Kind of a kind of a sad irony, but again, at least if God gives me the blessing to recognize that and to recognize the contrast of what I think of as a reward with the true reward that I did receive as I prepared this sermon and as I came this day to speak and as I thought about how God might speak through some word that I've, that I've said. The true blessing is entering into God's redemption of creation somehow. Somehow, coming into the love that he has in his body in the church that he expresses through Scripture by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the blessing, the true blessing, and it's, it's the blessing that ultimately I think Job received even through his difficult times. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together here today that you are our blessing that your Holy Spirit comes to us, that your Holy Spirit speaks to us, that your Holy Spirit calls us to your redemption. Creation and all things in it are yours. As we sang today, this is our Father's world, and it is perfectly ordered by your love and care for creation. Sometimes it seems far from that. Sometimes the challenges that we go through in any given week want to pull us away from the knowledge of your care and love. But we thank you, Lord, that your love for us is not based on our ability to perform, on our ability to control, on how much knowledge we have, but rather your goodness, the love that you have first in Trinity, spreads out and redeems us and calls us, comforts us, and brings us true blessing. We Thank you for this time we could spend together and pray, Lord, that you would be with us this week. Turn our hearts to you in all that we do. We ask in Jesus' name.